0: Uh, yesterday, I was, uh, I was invited to the Roman Catholic Archdiocese to speak. It's uh, not often they, uh, they invite rabbis to go speak to uh, priests and bishops, but I was uh, honored to do so. They even accommodated the time change. They, um, they made it for 2.15, because uh, I told them that uh, uh, far more sterner than God with me viola- violating the Sabbath would be my wife being late for dinner. So they were very, very uh, cordial about that. Uh, But the reason why I was invited to speak to them was on the occasion of the fourth and final week of Advent. Advent is uh, not a very well-known event, um, certainly outside of the Christian world, not so much even in the Christian world at this point. uh, But uh, it celebrates at the month prior to Christmas that they um, have uh, weekly celebrations and reflections there is a long-standing tradition which has since died of uh, fasting three days a week um, on the four weeks of Advent that no longer happens to any recognizable degree. Now, all in the act, as, um, as my friend, the person who invited me, Father Thomas Rosica, who was the CEO of World Youth Day when uh, Pope John Paul II came to Toronto, um, he pointed out that the, the story of Advent is a story of preparing oneself for what Christmas celebrates. And they invited me because they felt that to conclude the uh, series on Advent, uh, that it would be interesting to invite a Jew to talk about messianism. In other words, what Jews believe to be the story of what happens at the end of the story. And uh, certainly very, very appropriate, as I pointed out, and that's because the person who they celebrate the birth of as being the Messiah to the world, was born a Jew. That on the eighth day of his life, he had a brit milah, a circumcision. That Jesus' life was punctuated by the things that punctuate our lives. That is, Shabbat. We know that he went to synagogue on Shabbat. Certainly, the shul that he went to looked nothing like this, not the least of which being that we have windows and climate-controlled environments and running water washrooms. But it was very different in terms of the order of the service, the things that they did on a Shabbat morning in the shul uh, roughly 2,000 years ago in northern Israel in the Galilee is dramatically different from what we do on a Shabbat morning. But nonetheless, there was a considerable amount of communal gathering that took place on a Shabbat morning, Not, not to say the least of which are all the great holidays in Jewish life that he observed, marked, and celebrated. And so they felt it was right and true and appropriate to invite a Jew to come forward and speak to that. And I was honored to do it. I want to share some of the ideas with you. In part because we find ourselves um, as a minority in a world that is celebrating this fact. And it's an interesting moment for us to remind ourselves of why we don't celebrate it. This is not to say, this is not to say that the people who celebrate things differently from us are wrong. That is not to say that. But it is to say that different religious traditions develop because they come from different answers and ideas. The Jewish idea and the Jewish answer about the human life, our condition, and the world that we live in is dramatically different from the Christian one. And it does not mean that we cannot respect, love and understand one another and be friends and supportive of one another. In fact, very much the opposite. The more that we can freely talk about our differences, the more we can fully respect and understand each other, the deeper our love and relationship will be with each other. And allow me to say, which I said to them also, that in this moment when the Jewish community feels so alone, how important it is for us to understand the strength of these kinds of relationships. The story of messianism in Jewish life is very, very complicated. And what I'm going to do here for the next five or seven minutes is meant to give you uh, a mile, what, how do they say it? A, uh, a mile wide and an inch deep on this. But there's, there's an important point I think I want to make at the end. And the story of Messianism in Judaism, first and foremost, is punctuated by interesting personalities. The story, first and foremost, of Joseph this morning, and then of Moses, most famously, and then after Moses, King David. Each of these people are, in fact, categorized by some profound similarities to each other. What similarities do they have? Number one, they are all human beings and they all die. This is a very important point, that the Messianic character in the Jewish imagination was perceived and understood as somebody who was human, born of a mother, and someone who would die as all of the human beings die, and that their death would be the end of their lives, And it would not in any way be venerated or celebrated. Witness the fact that we do not know to this very day where Joseph is buried or where Moses is buried or where King David is buried. I understand that there are differing Islamic traditions. There are two uh, archaeological sites, not archaeological sites, excuse me, two um, tourist sites that mark where Moses is apparently buried. One in the West Bank and one in Jordan. But Moses is not buried there. There was probably a, uh, an Arab sheik whose name was Musa, Moses, and he was buried there, and that's what they called it. I'm not joking. I'm serious. We do not know where Moses is buried. In fact, it even goes so far as to say that in rabbinic tradition, they tell a beautiful story that if nobody knows where Moses is buried, how was Moses buried? And the ancient rabbis go to say that God buried Moses. We then find a redevelopment of the Messianic character roughly about 2,700 years ago. What important event occurs in Jewish life, which was read beautifully by Leonard in the Haftorah this morning? The kingdom of Israel is broken in half. There's a northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel. There's a southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah. And the ten lost tribes are from the destroyed northern kingdom by the Assyrian Empire. At that time, the great prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel afterwards, see the threat of the Assyrians that if they crush Judah, the Jews are lost and gone. And so what happens is, is that they begin to imagine and pray for a Messiah to come and save them. Interestingly enough, someone does kind of show up. King, King uh, Hezekiah, which is a whole other story. We're not going to go there. And then after that, the entire messianic story goes absolutely crickets, quiet, for about 450, 500 years. And what happens then? The Maccabee revolt. And the Hasmonean, the Hasmonean empire, not an empire, more like a kingship. And then the invasion of the Romans. And all of a sudden we start hearing again about a messianic idea. It is not at all surprising to us that the Christian story of a Messianic character emerges at the very same time. Because the Jewish world was literally fermenting with Messianic characters. Don't forget the revolt of Bar Kokhba. Bar Kochba was crowned by Rabbi Akiva as the Messiah. And there are many other characters throughout that period, roughly about a hundred years, that were filling Jewish history with the message of various messiahs coming and going. Not a small amount of the Dead Sea Scrolls deal with messianic ideas, which is all to say, which we already know now in hindsight, because wisdom is always best understood in hindsight, that the period surrounding the Roman invasion of the land of Israel, this is about 2,000 years ago, and the destruction of the Second Temple, which took place about 1,900 years ago, was a moment that was fraught and ripe with anxiety and fear in the Jewish world. And they deeply believed and wanted to see that someone would come and redeem and save their condition. They were being crushed, both economically, culturally, Militarily, despite the fact that the Jews had had waged three different rebellions against the Romans in the span of nearly 120 years, at the very end of that final rebellion, they were done. There was nothing left. The Jews spread out all over the world. And that you and I are here today, I have, I used to have blonde hair, brownish hair, blue eyes, because of that. My ancestors in the land of Israel didn't look like this. This is the story of what happens afterwards. So how do we understand the differences between what we believe and what they believe? When Jesus comes onto the scene, the Jews rejected Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah that they believed in. They didn't believe that that a Messiah would come and create on this world a kingdom of heaven on this earth. They wanted a Messiah that would come and fix this earth to make it more earthly, more livable. The heaven is where people go who are no longer alive. The Jewish vision is the vision of making this world more better for people who are alive. What does the old saying go? Jews don't build monasteries on the sides of mountains. We build shopping malls. But despite the, the humor, the joke, it has a powerful lesson to it. That the, that the strength and direction of the Jewish tradition is not to bring the earth up to heaven, but as the theologian, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, in the earth is the Lord's, the Jewish mission is to bring the heaven down to earth. And that the Jews weren't interested in believing that the kingdom of heaven was coming and that death would solve all the problems. That wasn't our message. We wanted someone who would help us defeat the Romans to enable us to constitute ourselves as a legal entity in a country living on our own. And that becomes the breaking point in this story. Centuries later, there are different messianic moments that pop up and occur in Jewish history and leave it no, to, to no less a person than Moses Maimonides, who lives a thousand years ago, to formulate and do something that no other Jewish scholar had ever done. Jews had always had a deep aversion to creating uh, articles of faith. In fact, famously so, in the Jewish tradition, there is a long standing debate if there, e- if, if there even is a mitzvah, a commandment to believe in God this debate actually begins to dissect the first commandment of the Ten Commandments with many of the rabbinic authorities believing that there is no mitzvah to believe in God, which is to say that Judaism is not a dogmatic religion. But Maimonides goes to the point where he does formulate a list of beliefs, articles of faith, called the 14 Articles of Faith, and in fact, in the Arts Scrolls Siddur, you can find them, and one of the 13 famously speaks about the coming of the Messiah. He writes like this Anima amin be'amunash that I believe in a perfect faith, be'vi'at ha in the coming of the Messiah. Im hakolo, and for this I will wait, that even though he should tarry, I believe he will come. Take careful note that Maimonides does not say, in the arrival of the Messiah. Maimonides says, in the coming of the Messiah. And what's the difference? As my teacher, the great theologian, Yisheu Leibovitch once said, the story of the Messiah is a story where he is forever coming, but never actually arrives. What I want to say to you is, is that of all the great religious emotions and feelings that live in our lives, and there are many and they are beautiful? Perhaps the greatest of them is precisely that emotion. The emotion to stand in a moment and wait for something beautiful to come. And while we know that it may not come in our lifetime, and it may not come in the lifetimes of our children or our grandchildren, but it does not break our belief that it will come, and it does not shatter our commitment to the system of faith that holds that wish. Don't forget that thousands of years after that, that it was a Polish poet by the name of Naftali Imber who wrote these words, Odlo ovda tikvatenu. We have not yet lost our hope. That, of course, becomes the key words of the Hatikva. The Israeli national anthem, "Odlu Avda Tikvatenu," he b'chnot al paim. Even though she is this dream, this hope, two thousand years old, the idea of believing that something will happen is not meant to paralyze us, waiting for something else to do it for us. But the Jewish ingenuity is in the belief that it will come; that we have to make ourselves a part of it to contribute to the world by feeding the hungry, clothing the cold, supporting the needy, being kind and loving and strong, and not to be afraid. That's what this idea is. It was shared with with me yesterday by my dear friend, Father Rosica, the story that I did not know. That after the 7th of October and the extent of the devastation that had taken place and the over 200 people who had been taken hostage, that the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Jerusalem had sent the message to the leadership of Hamas, and this is what he said, that he would turn himself over as a prisoner to them if they would release in exchange all of the Israeli hostages. It is a beautiful message to us that even though there are religions and faiths of great differences, the thing that holds us together is our ability to work towards the things that we wish for. Shabbat Shalom.